Uh, good morning, sisters and brothers. Please do be seated. Uh, can I get you to turn back with me, please, to uh, uh, our Old Testament reading today, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 5, uh, either on your, uh, in your Bible or on your device. Uh, I've got your order of service uh, on your device. Uh, the whole chapter is printed in the order of service, uh, even though we didn't read the whole thing in our, uh, in our service. But we're going to cover the whole thing in the sermon. So we could have uh, uh, 2 Samuel 5 there. Uh, let me lead us in prayer uh, as, we, uh, as we come before God. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Uh, that you speak to us uh, by your Spirit through your Word. Uh, and we pray now that as we come to look at uh, 2 Samuel 5, uh, that you indeed be at work. Uh, we pray that you help me to preach uh, faithfully and in your Spirit's power. Uh, we pray that your Spirit would open our eyes to see Jesus, uh, that we might love him uh, and that we might obey him and follow him uh, and, uh, and please him in what we do. So we commit this time to you. Uh, we ask for your help, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me just ask, how many people here have been to Jerusalem? Just put your hand up, just so we can see. How many people have been to Jerusalem? Okay, well, that's good, isn't it? Quite a, quite a, quite a number. Huh? Uh, if you haven't been, it's, I think, actually worth a visit. Before I went, I thought, nah, don't worry, I knew Jerusalem, now I'll go. Right? But uh, actually, it's worth a visit if you've got a right guide. Uh, Jerusalem is an ancient city. Uh, archaeologists say that nomadic shepherds camped in part of Jerusalem uh, that we now call the city of David uh, 4,000 years before Christ. Uh, but by the time of our passage today, uh, the Jebusites, a group uh, called the Jebusites, have been there a long time. Uh, but today we will see it changing hands uh, in accordance with God's plan and promises because God's promised king would reign from God's chosen place. Well, as we come to our passage today, we are in ancient Israel a thousand years before Christ. Uh, two years before this, Saul the king had been killed in battle by the Philistines. And David, to whom God promised the kingship, became king over his tribe, the tribe of Judah, and set up his capital in Judah in a place called Hebron. But the other tribes, you might remember from last week, had gone with Saul's surviving son, Ishbosheth, triggering a bloody civil war. Towards the end of the war, Ishbosheth was assassinated, though not on David's orders. And when the culprits came to him, David even sentenced them to death for Ishbosheth's murder. Because God had promised David that he would be king over Israel, David trusted in God's promises, and he would not be party to sin in order to bring it about. Eventually, however, the northern, northern tribes decide, decide to accept David as king. Right? He didn't conquer them, they approached him. In fact, they'd been secretly planning to do that even before Ishbosheth was killed. And so, chapter 5, verse 1, they come to David at Hebron and they tell him three things. First of all, they know they're not foreigners to one another. Behold, they say, we are your bone and flesh. In the law of Moses, God had said in Deuteronomy 17 15, that an Israelite king must be an Israelite. Right? One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. David was actually one of them, their own flesh and blood. And secondly, they remember that even when Saul was king over them, David used to lead their battles. Now, back in Saul's time, they say in verse 2, uh, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. Uh, we read last year in 1 Samuel 18, 13, that Saul had made David a commander of thousands. He went into battle for Israel, came back victorious for them. 
and they loved him for it. David, under Saul, had already proven himself faithful and capable in representing his people in battle. And then thirdly, they remembered God's promise to David. At the end of verse 2, the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people, Israel. You shall be prince over Israel. The word shepherd there implies both leadership and care. And the word prince implies that the true king was God himself. David would be the shepherd king of Israel under God. That was God's promise. And so David fit God's criteria. He had proven himself faithful. And most importantly, he had God's promise. And so the elders wanted him not just to be king of Judah, but to be their king. And so in verse 3, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed him king over Israel. In the New Testament, Jesus, the son of David, according to the flesh, he was the king of the Jews first before uh, the northern tribes people came in. I remember from the day of Pentecost, the news of his kingship and his reign went to the Jews in Jerusalem and Judea, which corresponds to the Judah in David's time. Of course, not everyone accepted him as king, just the true Israelites, the, the true spiritual children of Abraham, the true sheep who heard his voice. Right? It's always been, right throughout the Bible, an outward Israel, by name, in polity, by descent, biologically, and then as a subset of that, the true Israel, the ones who are really trusting God. Right? And so the Jews of the true Israel... They were the first who believed and entered into Jesus' kingdom. And a little bit later on in the book of Acts, the gospel went out to the Samaritans. These were the people from the northern kingdom. And the true Israelites from there also believed and entered into the kingdom. Of course, the gospel later go out to the Gentiles as well, but that's a different story. The important thing today is how David prefigures his son. Just as Jesus was the king of the Jews first, then all Israel. David is the king of Judah, and then of all Israel. And there are other similarities as well. David could be king of Israel because he was their flesh and blood. Hebrews 2 tells us that Jesus took on flesh and blood so he could fight for us against the devil. David went out to war for Israel, came back victorious. Jesus went out and did battle for us on the cross, came back victorious in his resurrection, and we love him for it. God promised David to make him the shepherd prince of Israel, ruling under him. And Jesus is God the Father's promised shepherd king, who rules us lovingly under his father. But there is one big difference. Look at verse 4 and 5. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. Right? That's impressive, isn't it? It's a long reign. But Jesus is the king who reigns forever and ever, whose kingdom will never come to an end. And that, my friends, is even better. Well, the next section is about David's city. Remember, David was based in Hebron. But now that he's king over all Israel, he'll need a capital they all can all identify with. And so in verse 6, he decides to attack the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land who had settled in what we call Jerusalem. Uh, back in Genesis 15, God had promised Abraham that one day he would punish the Jebusites, as well as a whole lot of other nations, and give Abraham's descendants their land. 
In Deuteronomy, they were one of the Canaanite tribes that God had commanded to be exterminated from the land. But the job had not been finished in the time of Joshua. Their stronghold in Jerusalem was on a hill that was very fortified, made it very hard to attack. That's why they taught David in verse 6, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off. Right? In other words, it's so strong that like we can put the blind and the lame on the, on the wall to fight you, so you still cannot come in. Right? Not very sensitive to blind and lame people, actually. But David took the city. Uh, the weak point seems to be the water shaft in verse 8 that brought the water supply up into the city. And if the translation or translation is right, there's some query about this. But if it's right, then David sent men up the water shaft, which would have been very daring indeed, to penetrate the city's defenses. Turning the taunt back on them, he calls their hated defenders the lame and the blind in verse 8. Therefore, verse 8, it says, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house are possibly barring surviving Jebusites from the royal palace. Now, understood correctly, David's not speaking against disabled people or barring them from his house. Right? In fact, in chapter 9, he will bring a lame man into his palace to always eat at his table. What he was doing is he was throwing the Jebusite words back at them, calling them the blind and the lame. Uh, but I think he's a bit loose with his tongue. And that would have consequences. By the time of Jesus... It would seem that this, together with the requirements of Leviticus that the priests should not be disabled, had morphed into the prohibition of the blind and the lame from entering into the temple. Now, it might have seemed like development, but actually that's not God's intention. But remember what happened in our gospel reading today? The blind and the lame came to Jesus in the temple, and he healed them to the indignation of the temple authorities. Right? If he healed them outside, no problem, lah. then they come in. But he let them come into the temple and he healed them there. And the harm that was done through David speaking too loosely was ultimately corrected by his greater son. Let us be careful and considerate when speaking, lest we cause harm to others, even unintentionally, with the words that we say. The Jebusite stronghold that David conquered was taken over and called the City of David. And that's not to be confused with Bethlehem. It's also sometimes called the City of David for completely different reasons. Uh, but when we say city, right, it's actually it's just a small area on a steep hill in part of what now we call the big city of Jerusalem. Right? But at that time, that was Jerusalem. Hadn't expanded yet. And David settled there and in verse 9 built the city all around from the Milo inwards. Right? The Milo not being a chocolatey drink, right? uh, but being artificial terraces uh, on the steep hill where the houses are built. Uh, if you do go to Jerusalem today, do pay a visit to the city of David. It's been excavated. It's now an archaeological and tourist site. Uh, from his base there, David became greater and greater. In verse 10, for the Lord of hosts, that is the God of armies, the mighty God who fights for his people, was with him. And even his neighbors can see what's happening. One of them, Hiram, king of Tyre, was very supportive. In verse 11, he sent messengers to David and cedar trees and also carpenters and masons who built David a house. Uh, and David would think about this beautiful house of cedar later on in chapter 7 and compare that with the dwelling of God, uh, which was in a tent. And that would trigger his thinking uh, about a temple. And we will, meet, we will meet Hiram again in 1 Kings when Solomon actually builds a temple. But for now, 
David's increasing greatness is not a cause for pride or arrogance. No, no, no. His heart is in the right place. It assures him of two things. We see in verse 12, David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel. He knew that God was the one who made him king. Right? David had done the right thing, not taken the kingship, grasped it in an unethical way. He trusted God. God made him king, and now God is blessing his kingship. He knows for certain this is from the Lord. And we know, too, that Jesus' kingship comes from the Father, isn't it? He didn't grasp it sinfully. Instead, he was obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And as we saw in our New Testament reading, God raised him from the dead publicly and powerfully, declaring him to be the Son of God, that is, the true king, and exalting him on high. And his kingdom is spreading as he's being made known around the world. His house is being built by people from all nations. God has established him as king over all, and all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And you know, brothers and sisters, the day will come when we too will reign with Christ. And don't ask me what it looks like, I don't know. But the Bible tells us that we will. And it will not be because we've grasped it through our own dealings and scheming. It will be because of God and God's promises. And even now, there will be times when God gives us a measure of responsibility in his church or in the world. And for each one of us, that's going to be different. But don't you ever sin in order to get that for yourself. Do what is right, and if the Lord wills, he will establish you where he wants for a time. And if he does, then you can say that you're only in this position because the Lord puts you there, and you use it to serve him. Which brings us to the second thing that David realized. David knew at the end of verse 12 that the God had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. David was God's king. But it wasn't just about him. God had exalted his kingdom for the sake of God's people. And he knew that he must rule under God for the good of his people. And when Jesus came, he was the servant king. Came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's the king who loves us, who rules us, his people, for our good. Likewise, brothers and sisters, to whatever measure God entrusts responsibility uh, over others to us, wherever that may be, we must exercise that responsibility for the sake of those whom we serve. Not given responsibility so we can lord it over people, but that we can serve God and serve others. It doesn't necessarily mean giving everyone what they want. Right? We obey God, not man. But it does mean that we seek to act for the good of others, as revealed in God's word. Jesus said, whoever would be great among us must be the servant of all. And our leaders ought to exemplify this. Now, we're still looking at David in Jerusalem. Uh, and there's one more thing that the narrator tells us that actually asks, leaves us with some questions. Look at verse 13. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had come from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. Uh, now, on the one hand, this is another example of his greatness. Right? It's got more concubines, more wives, more children. Right? It's befitting of the way that, uh, you know, he described his greatness in a way that's consistent with, with other kings of his time. 
Yet, on the other hand, when we read this, we get a little bit worried, don't we? And not only do we know God's ideal for marriage in Genesis 2, but we've read some very explicit statements about the king's marriage in Deuteronomy 17, which uh, the passage I referenced earlier. Uh, God warns in Deuteronomy 17 that king should not acquire many horses for himself. I should not have many wives, lest his heart turn away, and should not acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. Now, David didn't do any of that except then, looking at the many wives, but how many is many? And the warning against that is, lest his heart turn away. David always guarded his heart, so he didn't turn away. So, so, so maybe this is okay. Maybe it is. The, the narrator doesn't make any comment about it, and it seems to flow with all the other positive things about David, but then, then you read the next verse. And these are the names of those who are born to him in Jerusalem. Shamua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nephek, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphalet. Now, tell me, which name stands out to you? Solomon, right? Solomon was David's son who took over as king. Uh, God established Solomon as king just like his father. Uh, Solomon followed his father in loving and obeying God. And we know Solomon's on our mind because we just heard about that house of the Lord. Because Solomon built the house of the Lord with cedar wood and craftsmen from, from, from King Hiram of Tyre. Where David took more wives, Solomon took many, many more. Or David took wives from Jerusalem, Solomon took them from the foreign nations. Where David sailed into the gray areas of Deuteronomy 17, Solomon clearly defied it. It's a danger, isn't it? When you go close to the edge, even though you don't tip over, because the next generation may consider that the starting point for going further and plunging headlong down the cliff. Parents, leaders, friends, Let's be careful of the trajectory we set for the next generation. David was a good king, a man after God's own heart. But even he is not safe to follow without reservation. How much less the leaders and rulers of today. No one is. But Jesus always did what was right from the heart. And it's always safe to follow him. Well, the last section in chapter 5 con considers David's victory over the Philistines. Uh, in verse 17, when the Philistines heard that David's been anointed king, they all go to search for David. Uh, David hears their plans. He goes down to the stronghold, maybe his new stronghold in the city of David. And in verse 18, the Philistines come and they spread out in the valley of Raphaim, which is just a few kilometers uh, southwest of Jerusalem, like from here to Bangsa. Uh, and David does what Saul didn't do. He inquires of the Lord. Uh, we're not told... How he does it, but he does. In verse 19, he asks, Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord answers, go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And so David trusts God. He goes. He goes head to head with the Philistines, and he defeats them. And he says in verse 20, the Lord has burst through my enemies before me like a bursting flood. And so they call the place Baal Perazim, which means Lord of the bursting through, Lord of the breaking up. David knows that even though he's the one who fought, actually God is the one who gave him the victory. And you know what happens? The Philistines 
They abandon their idols and run away. And so David and his men carry them off. And so God's anointed king not only defeats his enemies, but captures the enemy's idols, bringing them to public disgrace. Jesus, the son of David, defeated our enemies on the cross. Colossians 2, 13-15 tells us that God forgave our transgressions by cancelling the record of our sins, by nailing it to the cross as Jesus died and paid the debt of our sin for us, taking God's punishment on our behalf. And then it says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. With the debt of sin cancelled, they've got nothing they can use against us anymore. And as God shamed the Philistine idols through David, God shamed the spiritual forces of evil through Jesus. But that's not the end of the Philistine story. In verse 22, they come and they yet again spread out through the valley of Raphaim. Now, looks the same. So David could have just gone and fought them again. But instead, verse 23, again he inquires of the Lord. He doesn't take God's plan for granted. And this time, God says something different. Last time, David's victory seemed natural, although actually it was from God. This time, there's going to be an unmistakable supernatural element to it. And at first, David's got to go around and approach from the other side where they're not expecting. God says, verse 23, you shall not go up. Uh, You shall go around to the area and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself. For then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. Right? The sound of marching at the top of the balsam trees tells us that, that God's army is fighting with David to strike down the Philistines. Right? But you know, that's his cue not to be passive, but to go and fight. And so verse 25, David did as the Lord commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines from Geba to Giza, which is an even bigger victory than Jonathan achieved in 1 Samuel. Brothers and sisters, like David, and like those actually more like the men who fought with David against the Philistines, our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. We fight under our anointed king. The sword we wield is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And God is with us as we go out to fight against Satan by sharing the gospel with people. God is the one who works supernaturally in people's hearts as we speak the word to them. Ultimately, God is the one who gives the victory as people are saved from Satan's realm and come into his kingdom. The fact that God is at work does not mean that we can be passive. When we recognize that God is working to save his people, that is our cue not to be idle, but to fight. Through Jesus, the son of David, the forces of evil were decisively defeated. And through us who march under him, through him, the gospel goes out and people are rescued from the enemy's clutches as they believe in the Son. Sometimes our fight will look natural. Sometimes the supernatural will be obvious. But either way, God is the one who gives the victory. And no matter how many times we do it, we must never be presumptuous. Let us come before the Lord each time. Seek his wisdom, his blessing, his power. For in the end, we have no hope against the enemy, except when God fights on our behalf. 
Well, in 1 Samuel, we've seen David's reign, David's city, and David's victory. And we know they point forward to Christ, to Christ's reign, Christ's city, Christ's victory. Let me end by going back to the city. David took Jerusalem from the Jebusites and made it his own. And so it became the seat from which he ruled as king over God's people. In the New Testament, you and I who trust in Jesus, we are citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem, the place from which Jesus, God's king, rules over his people. That Jerusalem from which he reigns, the Jerusalem which is above, that is our spiritual home, even now. That is where we belong. But one day, we will not only be there spiritually, but in person. That Jerusalem will, in Revelation 21 too, come down out of heaven from God. And the king will have not a plethora of wives and concubines, but his one precious bride, the church, beautifully adorned for her husband. And so, brothers and sisters, we will ever be with our victorious, anointed king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus is our perfect king. Thank you that he died for us to pay the penalty of our sin and to rescue us from sin and Satan and death and hell. Thank you for raising him from the dead and so declaring him powerfully to be your chosen king. Thank you that his kingdom is growing over all the world as people come to believe in him. And thank you that he's such a wonderful shepherd king who loves us, died for us, guards us, guides us, protects us, and leads us. Please help us, we pray, to love and follow him. And thank you that we can do that without reservation. Please help us to trust your purposes for us, whatever they may be. Not resort to taking things into our own hands by, by sinning to achieve our goals. Please help us to use whatever measure of responsibility you've given us, whether in church or the workplace or at home, to serve you and to serve others. Please help us be mindful of how our words and actions will affect others, especially those who look to us for leadership, and help us not to lead them in the wrong direction. Please help us to work with you for the salvation of others by, by lovingly telling them the gospel. Please help us to keep coming to you day by day, seeking your wisdom and blessing for the things that are before us, and never thinking that we can do things without you. And please help us press on in faith as we wait for the day when we will be with our King in the new Jerusalem, to love him and serve him and enjoy him forever. And we ask this in his name. Amen.